Hi, listeners. Welcome back to the Bonehead Podcast. I am Joy D. Beta. And I am Patrick Neon. Welcome back to another episode of our conversation series. We're joined today by our very first guest host, Olivia Tracy, who is a third year medical student at SUNY Downstate College of Medicine. Thank you for being here, Olivia. Thank you guys so much for having me. Today on the podcast, we are joined by a very special guest. We would like to give a warm welcome to Dr. Kristen Russo. Dr. Russo is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon and assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital at Columbia University. She is also the president-elect of the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society, or RJOS, which is an organization that supports women pursuing orthopedic surgery. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Russo. So Dr. Russo, we'd like to start off by discussing the journey that brought you here. Could you please describe the clinical training path that you took? Sure. I'm going to start with high school because someone once told me that you shouldn't put your high school on your CV unless you went to Stuyvesant. So <laughs> I went to Stuyvesant um, and uh, I fell in love with English at Stuyvesant, uh, surprisingly, after being at a math and science high school. Um, I went to Georgetown for undergrad to pursue English um, and started doing some student athletic training while there. Um, also worked with the Department of Orthopedic Surgery there and realized that um, I probably should become an orthopedic surgeon. So um, from there, um, I actually graduated Georgetown in three years. I took a year off. I guess now it's cool to call it a gap year. Um, and I worked in a lab doing some bench work because of the English that I spoke about before. Um, I also worked as a personal trainer during this time. Um, and then I came back to New York, where I'm from, um, to go to SUNY Downstate for medical school. Um, I had kind of a winding path from there because I didn't match into orthopedic surgery. So I did a year of general surgery at Brown um, before coming back to Downstate to finish out orthopedic surgery there. Um, subsequently, then I went to Columbia for a pediatric orthopedic fellowship. Very cool. Thank you. And how many years have you been in practice since graduating fellowship? So do some math. Um, about... <laughs> seven and a half years. Um, similar to us, you've attended Downstate for both your medical school and residency. For all of our Downstate listeners, how did your experience here shape your path or outlook on medicine? I think a lot of people choose Downstate and rightfully so because of the autonomy that you achieve very early on. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that is probably the most important aspect of Downstate that has shaped my experience and probably everyone else's experience as well. Uh, I think having the decision-making capacity, even when you're a student, really translates forward into residency as well. Um, there's not a lot of hand-holding going on. Um, you're really on your own a lot. And I think that is something that uh, you can either love or hate. Um, and, and I really loved it. And I, I try to embrace that and bring it with me um, in my style of, of teaching and learning now as well. You pursued your fellowship in pediatric orthopedics at Columbia, and you are now an attending there. What at Columbia aligns with your interests, mission, or priorities, and what attracted you to return there after fellowship? So I think kind of following um, with the autonomy aspect of Downstate, one of the things that I was missing from that time was strong mentoring. And so that's what I was looking for when I went to Columbia. And when I went to fellowship, that's certainly what I was looking for with my um, my attendings that are now my partners. Um, and, and I think that's what brought me back um, when I wanted to choose fellowship there because I wanted to be able to call those people whenever I needed anything for the rest of my life. Now to be able to work with them and to call them whenever I want um, about something is, is still holds true. And I think the Department of Orthopedics at Columbia just has a very different way of looking at 
um, the the mentoring experience and how important it is. Uh, and now that I am where I'm I'm at, I think the connections that you make um, via those pathways are are more important than anything else. So, Dr. Russo, what influenced you to choose orthopedics and specifically pediatric orthopedics? I think like many of us in orthopedics, we had this idea for quite some time. Either we were athletes or we helped take care of athletes. We worked with our hands. And I think that certainly is true. Uh, most of us also, when we go to medical school, say we come in with this open mind and <laughs> we're not going to fall in love with anything else. Um, and, and to me, I think that was probably the case. The only other thing that I fell in love with was pediatrics, which I guess kind of answers the second part of your question. But, um, but in general, um, I don't like sick people. Um, I don't like people who don't take care of themselves. Um, and therefore that makes them sick. So uh, there was a lot that I could cross off my list um, in terms of the other specialties. But um, when I got to orthopedics, then I realized that people are still pretty sick. And I, I fought so hard to get here and didn't find these healthy, motivated people, but then I found them in peds. And that also brings back kind of, I think, why I fell in love with pediatrics when I was a student, that if you are sick and you're a kid, it's not because of anything you did or didn't do, um, it's kind of out of your hands. And so I really um, like that aspect of pediatric orthopedics. You either have really healthy, motivated kids or kids that everything is really out of their hands that you get to make better. Right. Um, what personality traits do you think are important to succeed in pediatric orthopedics? Yeah, so I think that it's pediatric orthopedics is definitely different, just like pediatrics is different in any specialty because you're you're not just dealing with one patient. You know, I, I freak out when I walk into a room and there's not somebody sitting in the other chair, like when kids are 18 and they still come to see me. I'm very used to there being multiple people in the room and I like kind of treating multiple people in the room. And so I think you have to be ready for that. You have to be ready to educate and explain and understand on many different levels, um, which some surgeons do not particularly want to do and that's okay so i think you have to kind of know that about yourself uh, when you're going into any kind of pediatric subspecialty and do you think that your personality influenced your specialty choice i think for sure um i think that that's one of the things in hindsight you have to maybe look back on um or, or do some kind of crazy personality test um that says you want to go into pediatrics but there's something clearly that's that kept on drawing me um to pediatrics and i think it was that i i like to um, kind of connect with both the kids and the adults um, at the same time. So there are studies that show that women in orthopedics have a higher representation in the subspecialties of hand surgery and pediatric orthopedics. Have you seen this pattern with your colleagues and why do you think this trend may exist? So yeah, it's definitely the facts are definitely there. Um, you know, the Pediatric Orthopedic Society is 25% women. Um, I don't know the numbers um, about the American Society for Hand Surgery, but I'm sure they're probably similar, if not even more. I think traditionally, um, when orthopedics was more about brute force or was stereotyped more as a brute force um, specialty, that pediatrics and, um, and hand surgery were not as much so, and that's probably where that all started. And I think we're starting to see that trend slip away now, um, especially as there are more women in X groups, arthroplasty and trauma and spine. Um, but I also think a lot of it is about lifestyle. And for, um, for women traditionally, I think hand surgery and pediatrics does give you more of a lifestyle that um, is more you know, attuned to a stereotypical woman's lifestyle. 
So as a pediatric surgeon, what pathologies do you see most often? That's one of the best parts to me also about pediatric orthopedics. And I have not kind of niched myself into one area. Um, I see patients from prenatal um, to over 18, even though I don't like two years of age. Um, and I see the entire body. Uh, so I think to me, it's really interesting. I can go from one room and see a newborn with club feet, the next room and see a teenager with scoliosis, the next room see an eight-year-old with a leveling discrepancy, the next room see a 13-year-old with trauma. Um, and it keeps me on my toes and never gets boring. Um, and so it's it's really all over the place. Um, I, I see it all. Great. Can you talk a little bit about like the breakdown between how often you utilize operative versus non-operative treatments and like what are some cases, pathologies, or indications that influence your decision to operate? So pediatric orthopedics, probably compared to all of the other orthopedic subspecialties, is the least operative. So you also have to be prepared for that when you're going into pediatric orthopedics. I spend um, more time in the office than the operating room, whereas my joints are sports partners that might be flip-flopped. Um, and I think in general, I consider myself to be a very conservative pediatric orthopedic surgeon. Um, people ask me like what my specialty is, I say conservative trauma care, conservative fracture care. Um, I am a really strong proponent proponent of remodeling, of not taking kids to the operating room. Um, and I think that's, it's one of like the very uh, important talents that we have as pediatric orthopedists is knowing when not to operate. Um, you can always operate. That's, that's the easy way out um, as far as I'm concerned, but not operating is the harder thing to do and, and trusting yourself and trusting your knowledge and being able to explain that in whatever way um, to parents. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question exactly there, but I think that for, for me, knowing when not to operate is more important. Can you tell us about your most memorable case? Um, I think my most favorite case to do um, is a developmental dysplasia of the hip. Um, and for the most part, these are treated conservatively. And if everything goes right, you use a pelvic harness and you know, you'll know you never have any sequela. But some of them don't respond that way or some of them um, present late. And so you have to do more procedures. And so the kind of last procedure that you would do is an open reduction of the hip with pelvic and femoral osteotomies. And uh, it's always difficult because I tell parents, if, if somebody's doing a lot of these, it means they're not doing something right. So you're not gonna find anyone anywhere that's doing a lot of these, which just means that every case is that much more important and has that much more potential for, um, for you just being on your toes and being involved. Um, and so I had one of these that was now, in hindsight, it was right before COVID. I think it was one of the last cases I did before COVID um, in mid-February. And after you do this case, they're in a hip spike afterwards for a number of weeks. So it things became so interesting and complicated with follow-up and because we weren't really seeing patients. And um, and I became, I became very close with all of these families, but became very close with this family because we weren't in the office as much. Uh, and, you know, dad still texts me even now every time his daughter like hits another milestone and, oh, and does something and it's it's really i think touching and so those those patients in general it's it's hard because they fail the conservative treatment and you have to do a very big operation but um but that's probably my most memorable case for lots of reasons thank you for sharing that um and you briefly touched on this earlier but can you tell us a bit about what tactics you use for dealing with the parents of your patients yeah, I mean, I think um, tactics is a 
it's a hard word for that. I think becoming a, <laughs> becoming a parent myself, I'm definitely helped. But even before that, just realizing that somebody is letting you take care of their most prized possession. I think that levels the playing field a lot. Um, and, and you really, I'm very thankful for the parents that are letting me do that. Um, and I think that in general, also outside of COVID people don't come to their orthopedic appointments by themselves. So um, kids come with their parents because they have to, but parents come with their annoying adult children. Um, so I would much rather deal with parents who are concerned about their kids for the right reasons um, than the other side of things. Right. Well, you sound like a very um, great parent yourself and you pride yourself on the balance between being a mother and an orthopedic surgeon. Um, you self-proclaim yourself as a mama pod on Twitter. How do you manage family life, work-life balance and your hobbies? Um, so I say the first thing is I don't like the word balance. So I don't use the word balance. I think balance implies um, a struggle. Um, it implies that you're going to fail at some point, that you're going to fall off, um, like this type of walker or scales that one is going to win and one is going to lose. So I like to think of it as integration. Um, and I think you have to make things like very meaningful and purposeful. Um, I, I decided for me, it was going to be very important to have children and to raise a family. Um, and my husband is also a physician. So in a two position family that can get difficult. Uh, so I live down the block from where I work primarily from where I take call. Um, my kids go to school across the street. Um, you know, my daughter goes to gymnastics in the neighborhood as well. Um, and so I have made my world very small and that's not by chance, it's on purpose. Um, and it's not easy. Um, it would be a lot easier to move to the suburbs and, and buy a house, um, but living in the city where I work, uh, I think makes things easier for my family. Um, and I think that's really kind of the the key to where things stem out from there. Um, and I always have my phone on. I think that um, my kids understand that if I'm going to be with them, sometimes that means that I have to answer a phone call from work as opposed to I could be in the office and then not be home. So I think that that having that integration and I think that work understands that as well, that, you know, I am willing to come back and forth and to be here, but I may also um, have to be at home. Um, and I think that's the decision you have to make for yourself and, and find a, a job that's going to let you do all of those things. Could you tell us about some other challenges you faced in your training or that you're currently facing now as an attending? Sure. I mean, I think the biggest challenge obviously was that I didn't match, um, which, you know, last year, like 365 people also experienced. Um, and I think that for the rest of your life, you're going to carry that with you. Um, and on match day every year, I still get these feelings of kind of inadequacy and imposter syndrome. And if I'm really supposed to be here, uh, and when I'm mentoring students now who have gone through it, uh, you know, I tell them that it's okay to feel those things and it's, it's not going to go away. And even as far as you get, it may never go away that you're questioning, you know, why you're supposed to, why, if you're actually supposed to be here. So I think that's something that, uh, that I currently face and, and challenged with, I wouldn't say daily, and maybe it's it's not as frequently now, but it certainly creeps up. Um, and that may be a more of like a woman thing as well. Imposter syndrome certainly affects, you know, women more than men. But, um, but I think that the sooner that you can accept that everyone kind of has something and um, everyone's kind of hiding it, um, but when you can actually start to talk about it and use it 
that that weakness to your advantage, I think that's when things start to change. Thank you for being so um, open about that. And lastly, if you were asked in a residency interview the question, how do you see yourself 10 years from now? How close are you to that answer? So during my fellowship interview for Columbia, um, Dr. David Roy asked me this question, and he's the only person that has ever asked me um, this question. And so that was just about 10 years ago to the date. Um, so you're getting me at a really good time. Um, so I told um, him that I could see myself as being a program director for a residency program um, and that I could see myself with a family and that I saw myself still in New York. And um, I think that, that while it's not exactly what I am doing now, um, I think the things that I am doing now, I, I would not have predicted, but I'm, I'm so happy um, that I am. Um, you know, I'm in a, a big academic um, group in New York. I have a great family and uh, my expectations are really above and beyond what I thought I was capable of 10 years ago. So Dr. Russo, you're a very strong advocate for women pursuing orthopedic surgery. Why is this mission something that is important to you? So it's interesting because before I got to the position where I'm at now, um, I actually didn't think too much about women in orthopedics. I didn't realize that it was something that was a problem. I didn't realize it was an issue. I've kind of been surrounded by guys most of my life, um, went to math and science high school where there were lots of girls and we did science and tech and it didn't seem unusual. Um, and I've always liked sports and been an athlete. So I, I really didn't think that it was a thing um, until I guess towards the middle or the end of my residency. And then definitely as an attending, as the numbers start to dwindle even more. So um, we're very fortunate to be in New York City where there's a lot of diversity, where there are a lot of women there weren't a tremendous number of women in our residency class, but there were some. Um, and so I think making that clear to the rest of the country that this can happen and this can be something that is a reality is why it's so important to me. Um, and now realizing maybe I wasn't given opportunities that my male counterparts had um, because I was a woman, it wasn't something that occurred to me then, but now looking at it and maybe that contributed to why it didn't match or why I had such a hard time kind of moving through. So to give women those opportunities is really why I am in this place now. So earlier this year, you helped lead a fantastic event with the Perry Initiative at Columbia, and then you also helped organize a dinner for interested medical students at Downstate. Could you talk a little bit about these two experiences? Sure. So. Um, the Perry Initiative, um, which I'm sure many of you listeners know, is a program that was founded by Dr. Lisa Latanza um, and Dr. Jenny Buckley to encourage um, girls and women to go into both engineering and orthopedic surgery. So when I started at Columbia, one of the first things that I did was ask if I could run a Perry Initiative. And so now we've run one every year. So we've done six. We even did two virtual during COVID. Um, and I always make it a point that um, I want to have downstate alums invited. Um, because it's very important to me because I know how much I struggled with finding that mentoring experience during my time at downstate. So um, that's something that uh, every single year they come. And this year, um, many of the students then approached me and wanted to do something locally at downstate, which I was thrilled to do. Uh, and it was really great just kind of sitting and chatting and, and telling my story and some of the struggles and triumphs from a downstate perspective. Right. Olivia, we know that you attended that um, that event. How, how did that event? 
in yes. fact, you. <laughs> they were both wonderful. I was at both the event at Columbia with the Perry Initiative as well as the dinner at Downstate. Um, as Dr. Russo has explained on this podcast, she is a pretty phenomenal story and is really a strong advocate for all students interested in orthopedics, but particularly women. And especially with the Columbia event to see so many female residents and female doctors in one room, all of whom are really successful orthopedists at different levels of their training was really inspiring to me. And to see them with their families afterwards was also really a wonderful thing. It gave me a lot of confidence in myself and a lot of hope that there is a bright future for women in orthopedics. Thank you for sharing that, Olivia. So Dr. Russo, you've mentioned that you like having Downstate alums at the events that you lead. So what does mentoring students, particularly those from your alma mater, mean to you? So um, as I touched on earlier, the lack of mentoring that I had at both a student and a resident at Downstate is really why I continue to, to go back to Downstate for mentoring, but just mentoring in general all over. I never want anyone to feel like they're in that position, that they're kind of left behind because of that. Uh, so uh, the alumni mentoring through the Downstate Alumni Association is something that I have been doing um, where I'm uh, just coming back and having lunch with some alums and it's I sometimes like it when I am the woman sitting across from five or six guys um, because I tell them that you are never going to experience this again in your life. Um, and it's very, very odd um, to be in this position. Um, but I think that I also provide a different perspective even um, to guys at that point, which uh, will serve them better for the future. And I think because my story is challenging and also, um, I am the first in my family to go to college and the only person to go to medical school. I think that I identify also with a lot of underrepresented um, minorities in medicine and especially in orthopedics because it's not the traditional path. I didn't have um, you know, family members to look at for mentoring or to ask questions to. So I wanna be available um, to anybody who's in that position as well. Right, thank you for, so much for sharing that. And going off that, who were your biggest mentors during your training and how did they influence your view as a mentor now? So um, during Downstate, it was hard to find um, great mentors, but I would say um, my chief resident, or he wasn't, I don't know if ever my chief resident, but a chief resident while I was at Downstate, the first person who let me put an XFIX pin in is Dr. Ermeel Azer. And I still talk to him several times a year. Um, I like to remind him that he's the reason why ultimately, you know, I went into orthopedic surgery. Um, and I think it's important to thank your first mentor or that person that lets you do the first thing in orthopedics. I think that's really solid. Um, Dr. Kelly Stats, um, who is probably my first female mentor in orthopedics. Um, we used to work together at, at Methodist and she has since moved to California, but she's an awesome um, badass female joint surgeon who also has two kids and she's someone I still keep in touch with. Um, Dr. Elliot Hirschman, who um, did my own ACL when I was 17. Um, he was my husband's boss um, for the last five years. <laughs> and when my husband went in for the interview, I said, it was like, make sure you, he knows that you're my husband. <laughs> and when he came home, I was like, how did it go? He's like, it was great. We just talked about you the whole time. So, <laughs> um, so, so um, it's it's fun to kind of uh, to catch up with your your mentors because now that I get to be a mentor for people, you really take so much pride in seeing your mentees, how far they've gone, and and it means so much. Uh, you know, and having kids, I know like how much it means to see your kids do these things, and it's kind of the same thing with your mentees. So I think you know those those three people while I was in training there, and then when I got to Columbia. 
Um, Dr. David Roy was a huge mentor, um, Dr. Michael Vitale, um, as well as Dr. Bill Levine. They've both really been, um, you know, uh, my, my side during Columbia uh, and introduced me to a lot of the things that I'm doing now. So Dr. Russo, you've recently been elected as president for the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society. Congratulations. Could you touch upon the mission of the organization and what it means to you? Sure. Um, and like I said, it's sometimes it's the most bizarre thing that I'm in those shoes, um, but I'm, I'm here to embrace it and I'm really excited about it. So thank you uh, so much. Um, so the mission of the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society as we celebrate our 40th year it was created 40 years ago to um, touch on all of the things that women were struggling with with orthopedics and to come together to pool resources and ideas about how to get through it. So whether that was on the job, in surgery, in the office, or dealing with, with training and promotion, or dealing at home with your kids or your spouse, uh, it's, it's really to just come together and share everything um, that we have and things have changed over the years and what we're focusing on. And I'm really excited where the next 40 years are going to take us. So as a fellow Stuyvesant alum, I feel like I have to ask you this, throwing it back to your high school years, what was your favorite class and teacher at Sci? Mr. Grossman's existentialism class. Mm. He's, uh, he's currently the assistant principal for the uh, Department I of English. Still text him. Yeah? Yeah, <laughs> we are still friends. I really wanted to take his AP class senior year, but it's so popular that I didn't make it in. Yes, I was there before he was assistant principal. Um, he was actually a substitute teacher wow. when I was a freshman. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we've known each other for a very long time. We still keep in touch. Um, his son was born uh, the night of our senior prom. Um, and so he was there and he had to leave because wow. his wife went into labor. Um, but yeah, um, he's in, his son's in college now. Um, he lives in the neighborhood. So we run into each other and we still talk. That's very cool. Wow. You pride yourself as a big foodie. What is the, what is your favorite restaurant in New York city? This was like the question that I did not know how to answer guys. <laughs> <laughs> this is a hard one. Um, my husband and I, our favorite restaurant is where we had our first date, which was burger and barrel. Um, which has since closed. Um, it was a, it's John, one of Josh Capon's restaurants. Um, so Lore is also one of his, which is um, really great. We're big burger people. Um, so we're always kind of looking for the best burger uh, in the city. So, um, so nothing has really replaced that, that yet, um, unfortunately. <laughs> and kind of on the flip side, what is your favorite or your go-to meal to cook at home? Uh, so we cook every night um, and that's, you know, part of this like work life integration thing and living so close to home. So it's uh, it's tough to say like my go to meal um, is probably something really quick, uh, you know, like salmon. Um, but my like, favorite things to cook uh, are eggplant parm or it's like Sunday sauce, probably something Italian um, like that. So this might be a tough one for you as well. But what is your favorite pizza joint in New York? Yeah, um, definitely hard. I think that one of the best things about living in New York is that you can reliably go to any street corner and get a slice of pizza. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, that like our traditional round pie, I think is is not as important. But um, being like a Brooklyn girl, Ellen um, B. Spumoni Garden is still um, up there. We used to um, come home from Sty late after practices, me and three guys, um, and we used to get one pie and split it between all of us. Um, and I'll really throw you back for Sty. We used to go with Coach Bologna. 
um, who is there. also, yeah, yeah. Still there. <laughs> <laughs> and I still talk to, um, but yeah, but we all used to go there together. So that's uh, probably my favorite one for, for sentimental reasons and also for the food. What is your biggest hot take or controversial opinion? Oh, this is another one that is uh, troubling me here. And I was like, does it have to deal with orthopedics? Or does it just have to deal with, um, this is hard. We may have to come back to this. <laughs> um, okay, what about, what is your favorite pimping question for residents or medical students? Um, I don't have a favorite question, but I, I have no problems asking anatomy questions. And I think that if you can't answer them, I am, it's, it's bad sign. Mm -hmm. Like the thing I really expect uh, in orthopedics from med students is anatomy. You got to know your anatomy. You can't hold the knife if you don't know what's underneath it. Absolutely. Um, what is your favorite vacation of all time? Um, me and my husband went on our honeymoon um, after fellowship was over um, for four weeks. And it's probably the only time in my life I will ever do anything for four weeks. But we went to, um, to Paris and then we went to uh, Sicily. Um, and then we went on a sailboat around the Aeolian Islands. And then we went to the Amalfi Coast. Um, so it was wonderful and it will never happen again. <laughs> <laughs> what is your guilty pleasure? Uh, the New York Times crossword. Do you listen to music in the OR? And if so, what is your favorite thing to listen to? Um, yes, I do. Um, I thought that then when I was attending, I would finally get to be the one picking the music. And now they, everything is, we have new ORs here. So everything is on speakers and through the computer and I don't even get to pick the music that much. Um, but if I did, when I was a fellow, I liked to play to like what attending was in the room, right? Keeping them like interested. And I think that's important, but I think a good one, um, I really like the salt and pepper station. I think that's like a good mix of, um, of genres that comes up there. People really like hip hop barbecue. Um, so probably one of those two is my go-to, I guess. Cool. If you didn't become a doctor, what would you have become? I think at this stage, maybe like a bartender and make some pretty good drinks. <laughs> What's your favorite drink to make? Uh, probably a Negroni or a, like a Negroni variation, like a Negroni Stagliato or something like that. Who is the greatest athlete of all time? Brian Leach. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and lastly, how did you celebrate completing your training? Um, well, I guess it, serendipitously, my husband and I finished fellowship at the same time. So we, we took this ridiculous trip that we will never take again. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, we finished fellowship on July 31st and we were on a plane August 1st. So we really did celebrate the end of our training that way. So obtaining a residency in orthopedic surgery has become increasingly competitive. How do you think students, especially those from downstate, can set themselves apart? I think making the connections that you don't think are important is really, really key. Um, putting yourself out there, going to meetings, stepping outside of the comfort zone of downstate. I just thought it's like an oxymoron. <laughs> not a comforting place at all, um, but that's okay. Um, that's part of its charm. But, uh, but yeah, I think that you need, you need to find advocates, maybe more so than mentors. Uh, you need to find people who are going to think of you when somebody needs 
something that you could be the one that could provide that. Um, you need someone that's going to pick up the phone for you, um, whether that's to call you or to call somebody else. But uh, I think that coming from downstate, you really need to find those people. And you know, that's what hopefully I'm helping to make the connections for women and for you guys. Um, I can't do it all. Um, but I think making connections to other people who can help and increasing that kind of spider web that is really necessary to get to the inside of orthopedics is, is that the next thing that downstate students um, can do because grades um, now are dwindling, right? Not there anymore. Um, and you know, research is going to obviously become more important, but I think that getting that inside scoop um, and networking is paramount. To conclude, do you have any parting words or advice for medical students or residents who are interested in pursuing your specialty? I The advice that I gave um, to the women of Downstate when they asked me this, right, kind of off the cuff as well, was you either have to have thick skin or really good one-liners. <laughs> um, and I think like really good comebacks. And I think that kind of holds true um, for everyone, you know, in orthopedics, unless you have this ridiculous pedigree and your daddy was an orthopedic surgeon, you're going to meet some roadblocks and you're going to meet people who tell you no, um, or the whole system is going to tell you no. Um, and you have to keep your armor on and just keep on kind of powering through. Um, or the flip side, you have to have really good one-liners. So um, I like, only, you know, 10 minutes after the fact, I'm like, oh, I just said that. So I just have to keep the armor up. Uh, so you have to decide what, which it is that you want. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Russo. This wraps up our very special episode of the Conversation Series of the Bonehead Podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. I'm Joy D. Beta. I'm Patrick Neon. And I'm Olivia Tracy. Until next time. Peace. Thank you.